Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London. I'm Katie Martin. As the Trump administration reunites migrants and their children that it forcibly separated at the US border, China has been separating families on a far larger scale, part of a security crackdown against the Uyghurs. Our Beijing correspondent Emily Feng has been looking into the plight of this minority Muslim ethnic group who live on the ancient Silk Road route that linked China and the Middle East. She spoke to James King about what she discovered. Emily, thanks for joining us. You've recently returned from Xinjiang, the northwestern frontier region of China. Tell us a little bit about the Uyghurs and why have they drawn the attention of the Beijing authorities? The Uyghurs are a Muslim ethnic minority. They have a lot in common culturally, linguistically, and looks-wise as well with Turkish people. And they've always lived in Xinjiang, which is this western region in China that's about twice the size of Germany. China has always seen Xinjiang as part of China proper and has sent numerous military campaigns in Xinjiang against various groups, not only the Uyghurs, but actually the Soviet Union as well, to establish control over the region. And then in the 1950s, troops sent over by the new newly in power Communist Party officially marched in and annexed it as part of China that we know today. But since then, there's always been this kernel of ethnic tension between Uyghurs and then the Han, which are China's ethnic majority. They're about 95% of the total population in China. The Chinese state has seen its role in Xinjiang as a good one, that it modernizes and develops the region, it builds infrastructure, it brings investment. But the Uyghurs see the Han as immediately shifting the balance of power. They've taken all the good jobs, the highest ranking government positions, and they've restricted the Uyghurs' cultural, linguistic, and religious practices. The fear of this cultural erosion among Uyghurs is ever more visceral because over the last few decades, the Chinese state has also encouraged and subsidized migration of Han people into Xinjiang, and that's watered down the ratio of Uyghurs there. So as a result of all these factors, there's been this small but sometimes bloody sub-purchase movement that's continued to ferment there. And then things really came to a head in 2009 when there were these violent ethnic riots that broke out in the capital of Xinjiang, Urumqi, They then spread across the region. If you ask Chinese state media, they'll estimate that about 200 people died. Uyghur rights groups say that the death toll was actually much higher and that thousands of Uyghurs disappeared into Chinese prisons afterwards. But the Chinese state has seen Xinjiang as a very valuable geopolitical possession. The region has a ton of resources and coal, natural gas. It's ideally situated right next to Central Asia and the Middle East. And so it's always been a priority for China to keep on to, but I think 2009 was a turning point when the Chinese government realized that it couldn't govern Xinjiang the way it had before if it wanted to have the same type of control it had over Xinjiang. In recent months, we've heard more about what the Chinese call an anti-terror campaign in Xinjiang. To what extent is this campaign motivated by a desire to combat terrorism? I think that it may have begun as an anti-terror campaign And since then, it's morphed into something that far exceeds the mandate of its original intentions. When people talk about the security crackdown in Xinjiang today, what they're really talking about are measures that have been put in place only beginning in about 2016. And that's when the new party secretary of Xinjiang came into power. It's a guy named Chen Chuanguo. He had just come from Tibet, which is another region that has had ethnic tensions where he was the top party official there. And when he came to Xinjiang in 2016, he immediately began building a network of police stations and armed patrols that would monitor Xinjiang's urban areas 24-7. 
And Xinjiang has also used a number of all types of surveillance software to monitor people's electronic communications and, and whereabouts. What's been really troubling about the security clampdown, though, have been these mass detentions. So when Chinchengguo came into power in 2016, Xinjiang also began rounding up Uyghur adults and detaining them for everything from having Islamic content on their phones and computers to just simply traveling abroad, particularly to Muslim-majority countries. I think that if you look at all of these measures in the aggregate, it's very, very hard to say that this is legitimately a counter-terror campaign because of the way all generations of Uyghurs have been targeted with a very, very broad brush. Some of the urban neighborhoods that I went to in southern Xinjiang on my last trip there in June, people there were saying that up to 80% of the Uyghur adults there had been detained. There admittedly have been a number of very bloody militant attacks in train stations and markets and public areas, including one actually in Tiananmen Square in 2013, that were blamed on Uyghur militants. The issue is that we have very little information about what exactly happened during these attacks, who perpetrated them, whether they were isolated, or whether they were part of some larger insurgency movement, which is what the Chinese state says has been happening and has used that as an excuse to mount this, quote, anti-terror campaign. In any case, Emily, what you've been doing is you've been reporting on the family impact of this campaign. What's happened to some of the children that have been caught up in this crackdown? My interest in the children began because I started realizing while I was reporting on these detentions that there were no young children in them. So they were being sent somewhere, and I hadn't come across relatives who were able to say that they had taken in these children. After months of digging around, building up sources, and talking to Uyghurs both in and out of China, and then finally traveling to Xinjiang this summer, I found that many of the families who had had particularly both parents detained had had to send their children to what the government is calling these, quote, child welfare guidance centers. Uyghurs have very extended family networks, so relatives often were very willing to take these children in, but many of these children, over the objections of their relatives, were being sent to these welfare centers, which were essentially de facto state orphanages. During my last reporting trip in Xinjiang, I, I actually came across the case of a family whose parents had been detained, and they had four children. Two of the oldest, who are teenagers at this point, were eventually detained themselves. But family friends said that the youngest two, who were only seven and eight at the time, were sent to these orphanages, despite the fact that their grandfather and grandmother very much wanted to take these grandchildren in. And the grandfather, these friends said, even cried trying to convince authorities to let him keep his grandchildren. Gosh, these are very impactful stories that you're turning up. I mean, are there any chances that these children will be reunited with their parents sometime later? That's all really unclear right now. From the interviews I've done both with Uyghur exiles whose family members are still stuck in Xinjiang and also Uyghurs in Xinjiang, there doesn't seem to be a standard way to leave these detention centers. I spoke to many family members who had loved ones who had been in detention for more than a year and a half already. The only process that I could find is one in which a public security official will personally vouch for a detainee so that they can be released, but of course that rarely happens. An important point to remember is that these detention camps are extra legal. So the people who are detained in them never went through a legal process or had formal criminal charges brought out. That means that there's no justice system to turn to. There's no legal recourse to contest your way out of them. There's no even record that these centers exist and that the people inside them are detained in there. And so there's so far, as, as far as I can see, no means for getting 
people out of them and no means of reuniting families. Emily, do we know anything about the conditions in these welfare guidance centres? The nature of them is really unknown. I tried to go to one when I was last in Xinjiang. A number of people living nearby had said that this particular welfare centre was a school that had been turned into an orphanage. But when I went, like all schools now in Xinjiang, it was very heavily guarded with razor wire on top and two armed guards outside. I wasn't allowed inside the gates. And I was simply told that it was a school that provided free services to students between the ages of zero and six. So I was just told that it was a normal school and I couldn't see the conditions. That may actually have been true maybe in the past because it's emerged through my reporting that a number of these welfare centers had previously existed as government-run schools before the security crackdown. And other Uyghurs in Xinjiang were saying that some schools had also begun offering boarding to take in Uyghur children whose parents had been detained. But other counties in Xinjiang, based on public tenders that I found, were building completely new orphanages based on how many children needed care. There's also been a couple of Uyghur language reports that I have not been able to verify that these orphanages, some of them at least, are very overcrowded and that there aren't enough people to take care of the young children. But in general, what I've gathered is all of this is being done on a very ad hoc basis. They didn't build the orphanages first and then decide to detain all of these people and then have to take care of the children. As the detentions have grown, local governments in Xinjiang have had to figure out a way to care for these children, and so they've come up with a really ad hoc response. So you'll see people talking about orphanages that are everything from converted schools to new ones that they've built specifically for that purpose. We have an account here of experiences at the family level from Tahir Imin, a Uyghur academic who left behind a seven-year-old daughter in 2016 to pursue a master's degree in Israel. He's now a political refugee in the U.S. Here's his account of what happened to his family. After I came to the United States, they intimidated me. They said, your wife, your daughter is under our hand. And they went to my home and visited my family and they checked it everywhere. They tried to get any contacts and they searched my library and they interrogated my wife and they want to get to know all of my friends and the social circle, every people. After that, my wife told me that we have to divorce. At the time, I understand what is happening to them. When I was in Urumqi, I told her, if you think it is better for you to divorce, I will not oppose. Uh, she says, no, we don't have to. If any bad thing happens to me and to my daughter, I will tell you. So I felt that she was in a very strong pressure from her school. She was a teacher, a lecturer in Urumqi City Vocational School. And so... When she told me that she wants the divorce, I felt that situation is very bad. After divorce, my wife did not say any word, never talked to me by WeChat or anything else, never talked to me by voicemail or by writing a message. She did not say hi, hello. And when I talked to my daughter, let me see your mom. And my daughter told me, no, she doesn't want to see you. And after some time contacting with my daughter, every month I talked to her two or three times in a month. She doesn't speak to me, but I start to speak to her. 
I asked her, please say hello at least a time in a week because I'm very afraid what's happening to you. I wonder about you and your mom. Please say we are fine. Don't say anything else. I know your situation, but at least say, how are you? I am fine. Just say this. But they did not agree to say anything. And in this February, my daughter told me, Father, the people said you are a bad person and you don't have to call us. We don't like you. Police officer is very good person. You are a very bad person. Police every day comes to us. He takes care of us, but you are not. She told me this. She very loved me. She knows everything. So my daughter told me that we cannot talk anymore. Later, my wife deleted me from WeChat and our contact was cut off. Emily, back to you. As far as you're aware, had Tahir done anything to attract the attention of the police before he'd left China? Tahir knew very early on that the situation in Xinjiang was worsening, and he knew also that he would be one of the first targets when the security clampdown began. He had actually been in prison before, in 2005, for a total of two years, because he had written an essay that was critical of state policies, and then he spent those two years doing hard labor in a military settlement in Xinjiang. So he was already considered a criminal in the eyes of the Xinjiang government. When he got out in 2007, he became a social entrepreneur. He was well-educated. He was a really active member of the Uyghur community. He started his own business. He donated to charity. He educated women. His wife taught English. So he knew that he was one of these intellectuals who would be potentially seen as dissidents. And so he left as soon as he could to get a master's, expecting that he would be able to come back when everything died down. But sadly, that didn't happen. It just got worse. Is there any hope that this campaign by the authorities in China will ease at some point? I really don't know. I don't know what the end game is of the Chinese state here. Is it to keep these people locked up forever at great state expense because you have got to support the families and the children of these people that you're detaining? Or is it to temporarily pacify and subdue a population and intimidate them from ever doing anything ever again? In terms of the international dialogue that's happening about Xinjiang, the issue has been that, based on my knowledge, China has never admitted, even in a public state-level exchange with another country, that these detentions are happening and that these detention centers exist. Given that fact, it's been very hard for other countries like the United States or Germany or the EU to push back on what's happening in Xinjiang. If every country came out tomorrow and condemned China for its treatment of not only the Uyghurs, but the way that it's put an entire region with people of all ethnic backgrounds, Mongolians, Kazakh, Uzbek, Kyrgyz, you know, and so on, on lockdown, then maybe we would see some change. But Xinjiang really is a very sensitive issue in China and one that I don't think the Chinese state will back down on without a lot of pressure. And so I'm not sure what hope there is for Tier, but he is still organizing and he's still mobilizing Uyghur refugees and exiles all over the world to try to gain information about his daughter and to push for change through multilateral organizations now that he's no longer in China. I think it's astonishing that China to this day is seemingly denying that any of this crackdown is happening. It is very strange that the Chinese leadership has just very baldly denied the existence of these detentions. What they have said and various state media pieces is that there are, quote, vocational centers in Xinjiang where they are giving Uyghurs Mandarin classes, you know, and other vocational skills. 
ostensibly for the sake of poverty alleviation and economic development. It's a very, very euphemistic phrase for detention, but that's the closest they've ever come to saying that detentions are happening. That was our Beijing reporter Emily Feng talking to James King. You can find a link to Emily's report in our show notes. Thanks for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.